Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What do you picture when you imagine complex ancient civilizations? More than 2,000 years before the Greeks erected the Acropolis, Stone Age people in Orkney, an archipelago north of Scotland, were building and inhabiting temples, residential compounds with paved walkways, painted walls, interior fireplaces, and even stone storage cabinets. And then, after one final feast at the conclusion of hundreds of years of occupation, they mysteriously left it all behind. Archaeologists have only recently begun to understand the scale of this amazing discovery, which, as my guest today has phrased it, is turning British prehistory on its head. Rolf Smith wrote the cover story for the August issue of National Geographic magazine. It's called Before Stonehenge. Rolf, welcome to Think. Oh, thank you. How did the first evidence of the complexity of these ruins come to light? Well, um... This particular area in Orkney has long been known for having some really um, amazing stone monuments. There's uh, the third largest stone ring in uh, stone circle in Britain is is here. Uh, there's an ancient chambered tomb which is uh, also there. Is a, a perfectly preserved ruins of a uh, Neolithic town there, and a whole lot of other standing stones. So there was a, a knowledge that there was you know, a lot going on in Orkney. But what no one suspected was that right in the middle of these monuments was the uh, foundations and ruins of this ancient temple complex. Now, there was um, about 15 years ago, uh, the ruins that were already known were nominated for World Heritage Listing. And as part of that nomination, uh, there was some funding made available to do some ground-penetrating uh, radar surveys in the area around the uh, stone circle and uh, some of the other standing stones. And the archaeologist who was in charge of this um, decided he would pick this rather lumpy-looking hill to do uh, some ground-penetrating radar surveys there. And he wasn't expecting to find anything. Hmm. And um, these uh, came up with some really strange anomalies that suggested there were some very big structures lying under the soil. Now, even then, they didn't quite, I mean, they weren't really sure if this was you know, accurate, if there was something else down there that you know, they weren't expecting. But uh, they started digging test trenches, and um, the ruins started coming to light. And by about 2008, they, re- they, they began getting an inkling that this was something really, really big. And even with what they found so far, um, it's, they're still, they've maybe touched 10% of the, of the find. There's still another 90% that's, uh, that's hidden. How was that discovery um, changing previous understandings of ancient history in Britain and of Britain? Well, um, I guess well, there's a couple of things here. One, there's this, always been this kind of um, assumption that you know, anything cultural came from the south and moved up to the north. You know, the, the, uh, the more cultured southerly people, the ones that were building Stonehenge, they would send their, their, their knowledge and their expertise north to the you know, more remote and supposedly barbarian places. This is quite the opposite. This um, the Nessa Broadgar Temple Complex predates Stonehenge by a good 500 years. And in looking at over the ruins and some of the artifacts coming from these ruins um, and you know, tracing the, uh, the, the changes in art styles and, and, and uh, pottery styles, it's become apparent that a lot of the um, artistic, cultural, spiritual um, uh, high points of the age came from Orkney 
and filtered down rather than uh, the, you know going from the south to the north. Orkney was, if you if you will, sort of like the Athens of Britain. That was where all the the great thinkers, the the great architects, the um, artists, and um, pottery makers. It was all happening in Orkney and spreading southward. And it requires us in the modern era to sort of um, reframe our thoughts about what is remote in the British Isles and what is central. In fact, Orkney wouldn't have been thought of as remote by the people who lived there and, and in the vicinity. Not at all. Um, Orkney had a, a lot of advantages. I mean, even today, when you go up there, it's a very fertile place. There's, there's no trees there other than what, what have been planted in towns. But um, it's, it's quite windswept, but it's very fertile, very green. The climate has been moderated by the, uh, the Gulf Stream. Um, the soil's rich, and again, the climate was actually slightly warmer then than it is now. Um, so these people had good growing seasons. They didn't need to uh, chop down any big forests to clear their um, land for, for farms and fields. So they had a, a fairly easy start once they got out onto the islands. And they prospered. They had very large herds of uh, cattle, and they had uh, some. And they were very skillful farmers as well. They were the first people, certainly the first in Europe. And there's some claim that they could be one, among the first people anywhere to um, fertilize the soil they were using for their farms. <clears throat> so they were quite prosperous, and this prosperity gave them the leisure to pursue things like art, pottery, and um, monumental architecture. What, what does and, their art look like? Um, it, it's quite fascinating. It's, um, <clears throat> well, a, a lot of designs, um, chevrons, diamonds, triangles, in, in um, uh, close-set patterns. Um, it, it, it's quite, I mean, no, no one can really, you know, quite comprehend what it is that they're trying to express, but it, it, it's, um, it, it, it's quite, quite beautiful, really. Uh, again, it, 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 it's patterns, although they have found the, um, some of the earliest uh, human faces and little stone uh, figurines. Uh, what those figurines were for, whether they were pieces of a, of a game or whether they were um, ornaments, no one knows. But you know, they, have little, they found little human figurines as well, crude figurines, but definitely little faces on them. Does the fact that the region has no trees, does that account for the fact that people who wanted to live there and have some shelter needed to get pretty good at, at working with stone? Well, um, yes. I mean, uh, there were, it was slightly more, slightly more forested than it is now, but not a lot. But they weren't, weren't the big, deep forests. Um, but what they did have was some very nice workable sandstone. And um, so, yes, they got very good at it. Very, very. I mean, I, I was talking with a... Um, a stonemason uh, in Orkney, who was, uh, he, that was his job. He wasn't, he was visiting the site just to take a look at it. And uh, he was commenting that he wished he could buy, he'd get hold of some uh, tradespeople that would work for him that could do that kind of stonework today. Um, their dry stonework was just amazing. Crisp, sharp. Uh, they were very good at what they did. What kinds of tools did they have? Well, it would have been, you know, stone and bone, basically. Mm. Um, they were fortunate in that, this particular type of sandstone that uh, they use uh, fractures nicely along a plane. So um, that helps, obviously, when you want to build, um, you know, do some dry stone work. You can make it flat and, and um, stackable. Um, but they uh, yeah, just had ba- very basic tools, uh, you know, 
stone wedges and stone axes and bone things to to do some uh, to dress the the uh, sides of the stone and the inside the walls. But yeah, very basic tools, but they did very very good work. So, Ralph, what can we know about the size of the population five thousand years ago? Well, um, they've estimated the, the population is anywhere. I've seen estimates anywhere from ten to twenty thousand. Now, there's only twenty thousand people living in Orkney now. Hmm. So. Um, <clears throat> the islands were supporting a very sizable population. I mean, they weren't concentrated in towns as they are now. They were, you know, scattered in you know, small farms. But there was a sizable population in Orkney and um, a prosperous one. It's remarkable to think about them importing livestock because you mentioned that they had cattle and um, sheep and some other things, um, and those didn't occur there naturally. They brought them in deliberately. They brought them in, de- and that's, I mean, I. Talk about it! You know, one of the you know really history's great epic cattle drives. I mean, <laughs> these people came to northern Scotland with cattle, with deer, with sheep, um, and they got them into you know basically little leather skin coracles and took them across. It's not a great distance. I mean, you can stand there uh, um, on um, the tip of northern Scotland. You can look and you can see Orkney in, in the in the distance. But there's some pretty tough currents between there. I mean. You know, we're talking, you know, several miles. It's not like, you know, we're talking a couple hundred yards. We're talking miles, and some very treacherous currents in a little coracle boat with cattle. I mean, presumably they were taking calves, not full-grown bulls, but this was, a, you know, a very remarkable undertaking, and um, they did it. I mean, the proof is there. <laughs> they, uh, um, they had plenty of cattle, and, they, and you know, the cattle that, that grew there were big and beefy and... Um, like I say, they, they, they did very well for themselves. Is there any indication of what the labor force was like to build all of these monumental stone structures? Well, I've seen estimates of the uh, amount of man hours it's taken to build some of the other structures that are near the Nessa Broadgar. Um, there's a, a very uh, magnificent chambered tomb um, called Mays Howe. And I've seen estimates of anywhere between 50 and 100,000 man hours that would have taken to have built that, and uh, around 40,000 man hours uh, to have built um, the Ring of Brodgar, which is up in the hill just above this temple. But the temple complex is vastly bigger than either of those. So they would have had to have a large population, which they did have, uh, you know, it was 10 to 20,000 people in Orkney, and they would have had to have had the uh, sufficient leisure time to be able to take time off the uh, the farm and the and the cattle business to uh, to attend to this kind of thing. Any reason to suspect, as with the pyramids in Egypt, that slave labor was part of what made these possible? I mean, I, I suppose no one can say for certain. But it doesn't. It uh, my understanding from what the archaeologists have told me is it doesn't seem to have been that way. They appear to be a. Um, uh, there may have been the beginnings of a hierarchical society there. There could have been some people who were, you know, orchestrating this. But I don't, I, I don't think, from what I've heard or understood from the archaeologists, that, that you know, slave labor was part of it. This, this does seem to be a um, um, contribution, I suppose, um, by people all around the islands. I mean, there are stones that have been brought there from, you know, quite a few of the outlying islands. So. Uh, it, it, there is you know, speculation that, for example, the part, one of the functions of this uh, temple complex could have been like a parliament or a meeting house of various clans. 
and who, who apparently you know banded together. This is a you know obviously a speculation, but that, that does seem to be uh, probably the, one of the better theories that um, the clans or families, whatever units, got together and um, and created this this complex. What do the temples suggest, if anything, about the belief system of the people who built them? Well, that's a great question. People would love to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there, it, it's obviously very much speculative. Um, there's the Ring of Brodgar, which is this huge stone circle, which um, lies a few hundred yards uh, just further up the hill from where this temple is. And um, that, you know, is believed to have had uh, various you know, astronomical significance. Um, the uh, axis of the temple seems to be aligned with the, uh, the chambered tomb at Mays Howe, which is about a half mile away. It seems to be a, with a nice alignment with that. And that also is aligned with the um, winter, uh, the sun at the winter solstice, setting sun at the winter solstice. How all this ties together into a belief system is really anyone's guess. But it was obviously had some spiritual significance as well as um, there does seem to be, you know, commercial and, um, um, I suppose, parliamentary kind of significance as well, governing significance. People didn't live at the temple. There was no, um, no uh, homes there, although some of the buildings had residential features, but there's no evidence of anyone living there. This seems to have been um, uh, perhaps part church, part trade hall, part parliament, and whatever else. We're speaking with writer Rolf Smith, who wrote the cover story in the August issue of National Geographic magazine. It's called Before Stonehenge. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can call us at 1-800-933-5372, email think at kera.org, or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash C-A-P-E. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Rolf Smith, who wrote the cover story for the August issue of National Geographic magazine. It's called Before Stonehenge. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, join us by calling 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. I was delighted, Roth, to learn that these uh, many of these structures were probably quite colorful in their day. Yes, um, that was a big surprise to the archaeologists. Uh, they were, you know, over the moon with this one. Uh, they had long suspected that people, you know, probably decorated their their homes, but there's no proof of it. Here they found it. Um, there are some traces of uh, primitive uh, pigment paint, if you will, that uh, were, was applied to the uh, exterior. Um, Surfaces of the um, of these, these structures, uh, and you know it was definitely this is not you know, this is uh, uh, 
iron oxide uh, paint that, that came from a, from a different island. It wasn't, you know, it was definitely applied to the outside of these stone walls and uh, would have been um, a, a kind of a rich, dark red. And um, so, yes, that was a, a big surprise to the archaeologists. And, you know, for the first time, you have the Neolithic in color. There's a wonderful photograph included in the piece of a little, uh, looks like a stone cabin that you don't have to think very hard to imagine feeling pretty cozy there even today. I think the, the picture you're talking about is of Scour Bray, which is um, a, a perfectly preserved Stone Age village that was discovered um, in the 19th century um, after a huge storm uh, just waft, uh, washed away the uh, sands on a beach. And the people who owned the manor house came out and found that they had a perfectly preserved Neolithic village sitting right in their, um, basically right, right in their uh, their backyard. <laughs> and it is, you know, it's amazing to see that because it, it is so easy to imagine, um, you know, if if a modern person was was cast away on these uh, on an island like this, you would probably build something like that if you if you were good enough to do it, because you have you have the the, you know, the little stone hutches you have. Arrangements for beds. You have fireplaces. Uh, you know, really, all the mod cons uh, in um, five thousand years ago. What do we suspect about how they moved the largest stones? Did they have access to wheels or anything that would facilitate <laughs> that? It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a wonder. I mean, the the big stones, for example, um, uh, the um, the ring of Brodgar appeared to have come from a few miles away, over near uh, Scarabray, that, that little Stone, uh, Stone Age village that we were just talking about. Um, how they got all this stuff, it, it's anybody's guess. Hmm. The, um, the temple complex itself is built out of, uh, when I say small stones, not that small, but I mean, you know, small stones you could pick up, but you know, obviously thousands, tens and tens of thousands of them. And so these also had to be brought in yeah, because uh, they weren't all in situ. So uh, you know, how they were doing all this, um, I don't know, dragging with oxen, I have, you know, I have no idea. It's remarkable, too, to think about um, if, if some of these buildings were, what, 80 feet long and 60 feet wide, um, yeah. putting a roof over these things made of slate. I mean, the the architectural skills required to have these things not just collapse the moment you erected them are pretty extraordinary. Yes, they, um, they they were again a very talented, very complex, very coordinated society. Um, they uh, they clearly were working to uh, some architectural plans, um, and yes, these were you know slate roof structures at a time when everybody else was uh, using uh, you know thatch or hide or uh, uh, just grass. Uh, so yes, they had some some seriously talented people, and you know, again the. The quality of their uh, dry stone work, if you look at the edges and lines, are really crisp, really sharp, um, very neat. Um, you know, as that stonemason said, so you'd be really pleased if you got someone who could do that kind of work for you today, mm. if you were putting up a stone wall in your garden. So you said they may or may not have had a really hierarchical society, but clearly someone was coordinating this yeah. kind of work. Um, what do we know about... Um, how they worked together and whether they had enemies from the outside? Well, yeah, how they worked together, um, I, I guess all we can say is that they clearly did, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they did it well. Um, the complex is surrounded by a very large uh, 
very sturdy uh, stone wall uh, that in places would have been several meters high. Um, whether it was defensive or whether it was just simply there to uh, impose themselves in the landscape and to, to put awe in, uh, to the uh, minds of the people who saw it is hard to say. There doesn't appear to be any evidences of, of battles, for example, being fought there. It may have, the stone walls may have simply been um, part of um, just put on a very imposing display because Orkney does seem to have been um, part of a trade or pilgrimage route. They found um, uh, stone artifacts there that have come from several hundred miles away. Hmm. So people were passing through and coming there, and it well just could be that the uh, Orcadians simply wanted to uh, put their stamp on their landscape and um, let people know who came that, you know, this was theirs. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go to the phone now and speak with T in Dallas. Hi, T. Hello. Um, thanks for taking my call. I'm really interested in this. I've been studying uh, Rapa Nu, those stone hinges, and, and I'm glad to hear that this particular community created these in a peaceful, you know, earth working together, you know, uh, concept. And so I'm calling. I know you said there were two others, and I'd like to know what the names of those are. And then also I'd like to know, like, there's a Tropic of Capricorn, Capricorn close to um, Stonehenge in Rapa Nu, and I was wondering if there were other lines of the Earth, because I know there are five of them that are related to the other um, Stonehenges that you're talking about. Well, um, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Um, there um, are several large stone monuments um, on Orkney. The um, Ring of Broadgar, which is about the third largest uh, stone circled in Britain, that's a few hundred yards away from this temple. There's the um, ne- uh, Maze Howe, which is the large uh, chambered tomb I was talking about. That's probably about a half mile away. And there's the Standing Stones of Stennis, which is... Um, really just a couple hundred yards. Uh, again, another set of uh, standing stones, the remnants of another stone ring. Um, that's what there is in, in Orkney, and they had previously been looked at in, in isolation as, as you know three different sort of large but uh, dramatic monuments. And now with the discovery of this um, temple complex, um, people are starting to think of this as maybe being a very large monumental landscape, and that this new temple complex could be the, the key to a, a, a puzzle that uh, uh, hadn't, people hadn't really known existed before. Hmm. That this may be just, you know, uh, they may be coming into a realization that what this area was is a, is a very humanized, very monumental landscape that, were all, that was all connected in some grand theme that people can only guess at now. This story is made all the more tantalizing by the fact that whoever lived at Orkney in ancient times apparently left quite suddenly. Yes. Um, now, this temple complex was used. Um, it was continually remodeled. It was like a constant work in progress. It was remodeled um, uh, quite significantly several times during the thousand years or so that it was in use. And sometime around... Um, Oh, 23, 2400 um, B.C., um, it um, 
they just left. Hmm. Um, no one quite knows why, but when they left, they, they left in grand style. Uh, this was just around the beginning of the Bronze Age. Um, they held an enormous feast at which, um, well, several hundred cattle were slaughtered and uh, enough meat that would have just about fed the entire island. It would have been a, a, a barbecue for, for thousands. They know this took place because they found the bones. Uh, these bones were all deposited in, uh, in a single event. The tibias were all arranged in a certain pattern around the uh, exterior of uh, one of the grand buildings in the complex. And at the same time, the roof of the complex was deliberately caved in, and uh, some cattle, a uh, big cattle skull was put in there. It was, it was very ritualized, and then the site was abandoned. Now, what led to this? Um, what, uh, why the feast? Um, where the, you know, what, what happened afterwards? No one knows. And why it happened is also a mystery. It, it happened right around the, the, the turn of the Bronze Age, uh, there's speculation that perhaps the um, the Stone Age people that had lived here and, and prospered for so long may have been holdouts. Um, you know, one of the last holdouts of the Bronze Age was taking over elsewhere. Perhaps they just realized that their way of life was had come to an end and they were you know going off to do something else. Um, there's uh, a possibility that uh, some of the Icelandic volcanoes may have um, altered the, the climate a bit. Um, there were some big eruptions around that time, but so far there's no real proof of that, but that's another possibility. But whatever it is that happened, happened reasonably quickly, and they um, had their big feast, and they packed up, and they left. It's almost excruciating to have something so much unanswered when you have all this evidence of how they lived before. Well, yeah, it, the um, uh, chief archaeologist uh, for this site is a, a very nice man named Nick Card, who's a, a local archaeologist, and um, he has his his, his his day job, which is you know, lecturing and, and working as a commercial archaeologist. And but he takes six eight weeks off each summer to work on this site, which is the only time they can get away to do it. And he is incredibly frustrated. He's a very sad man when they have to put the you know, bag up and, and recover the site at the end of the summer um, because it, it is tantalizing. You do want to know what the next page is and what the next find will be. I mean, he's up there right now. Uh, the, the summer season is going. Um, I heard from him the other day. They're finding new artwork, you know, new stone tools, uh, giving some new thoughts about some of the architecture on some of the bigger buildings. And, again, he's, he's only touched um, 10% of the site. There's, you know, another 90 percent that they know that there are some very big structures, even bigger structures still, that are underneath the soil. What could be there and how this all fits together? Yes, it's a hugely tantalizing puzzle. How much protection does that UNESCO designation provide for the site, given that it was granted and no one really had any idea that so much would be found, and that there are, you know, 20,000 people living there today who presumably want to live and work and, and carry out their lives as normal? Well, actually, the Nest of Brodgar is not a World Heritage Site. It's it's in an area which, um, I mean, the uh, Ring of Brodgar, Maze Howe, Stones of Stennis, um, those are all have World Heritage listed. The uh, Nessa Brodgar is not. Um, it has been uh, the first part of the dig where it were done 
pretty much on the goodwill of the farmers that owned the land. Um, some, um, interesting enough, uh, American people that were uh, became interested in the dig uh, donated money so that the uh, farmers, uh, the land in which it, uh, the ruins are being found, could be purchased and was purchased by a, by a trust fund that was set up for the Nessa Broadgrass. So it's been protected that way. Uh, you know, donors have come forward and uh, provided money. So you know, it was, so it's been protected that way. And there's a, a great deal of interest uh, among the local people there in, uh, in what's coming out of the ground. There's a little. Uh, it's a very. Um, Orkney's a really, really nice place. I mean, it's, it's very um, uh, close, very friendly. There's a little bleacher set up by, by the um, the excavation. And it isn't just visitors and tourists that go. They're locals on their way to work. We'll stop and take a look and see what's going on and, and see what's been found. Uh, so there's a very strong local interest in what's going on there. So um, it's yeah, it, it's it's you know protected uh, very nicely, but not not World Heritage listed. One eight hundred nine three three five three seven two is our telephone number. You can email think at kera dot org. That's where we hear from Cindy, who asks, "What were their burial tombs and grave good, goods like? How did they get? How did they dispose of their dead?" Well, <laughs> again, that is a, a little. I mean, the, the, I was I was telling you about the um, chamber tomb at Mays Howe. Now, what seems to have been the case is that the dead. Now, whether they were high-ranking dead or what, were laying in here for a, for a period of time, for how long, no one knows. And then the bodies were taken out and, and disposed of in some other way. Um, it, it appears that they were you know, just left there until, I don't know, I guess they rotted or whatever and, and, and whatever else they wanted to do. But uh, it was a, a tomb that was reused again and again. Now, how many people would have been put in there, and what the other uh, you know, burials were like? Um, I don't know. There's a tomb in Orkney where they found uh, again a bunch of people in a uh, bunch of bones in a um, uh, old. Uh, I won't say a pit, but it's, it's something like that. Um, a, a cavern dug underground. Uh, they, you know, again, appeared to leave people to rest and then move them out, move them off somewhere else after a certain period of time. So much of it is, is um, speculation. I mean, it's a huge gap in years. I mean, we're talking 5,000 years ago, no written record. We don't know what language they spoke. You know, really, you can only piece together what you, can, what you can find. Did they have textiles of any kind, or were they still just using furs and skins? Um, they, there are, uh, I mean, they had, they certainly had sheep. They, uh, there are, they found, um, Little uh, little bone clips that that would have held cloaks together. Uh, obviously, the textiles would have been long, long gone. But um, yeah, they, they would have had those kinds of things. And so we're, the, the the clips that would have held cloaks around the necks and those have been found. Hmm. But the the cloaks themselves are long gone. We're speaking with writer Rolf Smith, who put together the cover story for the August issue of National Geographic magazine. It's called Before Stonehenge. If you'd like to join the conversation, call us at 1-800-933-5372. Send email to think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think.
funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash C-A-P-E. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. My guest this hour is writer Rolf Smith. His article, Before Stonehenge, is the cover story in the August issue of National Geographic magazine. If you would like to be part of our conversation, call 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. Let's go next on the phone to Faye in Tyler. Hello, Faye. Hello. Uh, I'd like to know if they find things that they have no idea what they did with them. You know, if someone finds our stuff a few thousand years from now, there's a lot of things that we use that people will never figure out what we did with it. And I just wonder if they run into things like that a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yeah, lots of, uh, I mean, there, there's some round balls that they found, um, uh, particularly last year. Yeah, what these are for, I mean, who knows? Um, um you know, they're, you know, they're obviously worked, polished, very nicely done. You know what they're, what, you know, they, they can guess. I mean, and and you know, there, there are a lot of stone, stone tools, stone shapes that uh, you know, they can make guess at, guesses at. But um, what? Well, I mean, the little, the little, uh, little human figurine. I mean, it's a little figurine, obviously. But what it was for? Was it an ornament? Was it like a little? chess piece type thing it's about the right size not that they were playing chess but i mean you know it, what, was it a game piece was it a decoration was it a, an icon a religious icon just don't know and, and that's something that you can you know recognize the shape of it at least other things you know yeah there are things they what they do to them who knows is there any speculation, Roth, that people from civilizations other than the one that built these structures we've been talking about in Orkney uh, may have come along later on and used them for some other purpose because they were already there and they weren't yet buried? It doesn't appear to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were, uh, yes, um, yes, you know, there were people that would have lived there uh, in and among the ruins for, for probably uh, a couple of hundred years. Um, but they were abandoned um, completely, uh, not that much longer after the, after it was um, uh, formally abandoned by the by you know a, 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 by the main group of society. There were you know people you know is there evidences that there were people living in that area, probably um, maybe borrowing some of the stones from the old temple uh, to build new houses. But the area itself never, um, it's in a really, it's a very beautiful area. It's a little ridge-like whaleback ridge between two um, uh, lakes. And it's visually very, very beautiful and obviously had a lot of spiritual significance for them to have built these enormous uh, monuments there. After they left, after the monuments ceased to become important, uh, that whole area in general seemed to have lost its spiritual significance, although people uh, you know, lived nearby it. But it never regained the um, the spiritual significance. And I mean, by the time well, you go back, you can go back to the age of the Vikings. You can find um, on the uh, Ring of Brodgar and in Maze Howe, you can find Viking runes from uh, the 12th century. 
Uh, and this was just a you know, kind of a wasteland with some stone, you know, stone monuments sticking out of it, and that's all it was then. In the, in the, in the, going back to the 12th century, so it had really vanished, uh, well and truly. Say even even by then, it was a long, long, long vanished uh, complex. One eight hundred nine three three five three seven two is our number. We have Barbie on the line in Carrollton now. Hi, Barbie. Hello there, Chris. I love your show, by the way. Thank you. Um, my question uh, is, I'm fascinated by this, partly because I'm the granddaughter of a Shetlander, and the Shetland Isles are further north than the Orkneys. But anyway, um, during the very, very early ages of Christianity, St. Columba settled uh, in a region near there, and uh, founded a monastery, and that was the beginning of Christianity in the British Isles itself. And, of course, all the uh, Celtic customs and uh, jewelry and all the rest of it that we have nowadays. Is there any possible connection between these ancient structures and the uh, civilization that existed previously and the reason why St. Columba went to that area to start Christianity in Britain. Hmm. Have you heard anything about that, Ross? Well, um, I mean, Orkney has been, uh, I mean, there's many, many layers of history in Orkney. I mean, you can find ruins, uh, Neolithic, uh, Iron Age, Bronze Age. um, uh, The Romans uh, knew of Orkney. you had the Vikings coming there. It was, it was Grand Central Station in the, in the uh, time of the Vikings. It was a um, really major uh, Viking stronghold. In fact, the islands were owned by Norway and Denmark until the um, 15th century. So, I mean, there's a lot of layers of history. The, the Neolithic builders of um, Vanessa Brodgar, I mean, they were their culture, everything about it, they, they were long, long gone. I mean, we're talking, you know, 5,000 years ago to about 4,000 years ago. Um, so they were, you know, their culture and everything was, it was long vanished by the time St. Columba was going around um, in, in Britain. And I don't believe he went to Orkney. Um, I think he was more in, the, uh, in uh, Ireland. Is there any reason why the, sort of the Stonehenge gets all the press and these other structures that are uh, scattered throughout the region are less well-known? Well, Stonehenge is really kind of where modern archaeology got its uh, start. Um, the first uh, known sort of official archaeology digs were in Stonehenge back in the 17th century. It was you know, again, it's not far from, not that far from from London. It's down the uh, down the Wiltshire, and so it's you know easy to get to. It's haunting. It's beautiful. It's it is you know a, a massive complex and very very important. I mean, it really was a a hugely important place. Uh, Orkney predates it by, by quite a bit, and there is uh, reasonably good evidence to suggest that the builders of Stonehenge, although uh, this was hundreds of years after uh, the the, uh, the Bodgar was built, the builders of Stonehenge were influenced by uh, what they uh, knew to be being built and done up in uh, up in Orkney. And again, or- Orkney was a was a uh, but what was a cultural leading, cultural bright spot in the in, in British Isles, and uh, but yes, Stonehenge does get uh, most of the glamour. But uh, I, I think eventually, when they find a lot, when the, you know more and more of what Vanessa Brodgar is is revealed and, and more of the story is told, I 
I think Stonehenge could have some good competition in terms of uh, brand recognition. Let's go back to the phones now at 1-800-933-5372. We'll speak now to Scott in Fort Worth. Hi, Scott. Hi. Uh, quick question. Um, there's always the reference in this conversation to Orkney as though it was one individual place. Is it all being looked at on Kirkwall, on, on that island? Um, pardon me? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, or, or well, is, is, Orkney is the term but... for, the, for, the, for the group of islands. So Orkney's the entire region, and they, some of these structures appear in different on different specific islands? Well, the structures I'm talking about are all on the island called Mainland, okay. which is the largest of the Orkney Islands. Um, it is about seven, eight miles from uh, Kirkwall uh, to the west. There are certainly ruins... Um, Right again, right across the historical spectrum on many of the outlying islands. There are um, Stone Age villages that have been found, for example, in Westray, which is one of the outermost northern islands. Um, there's uh, some interesting finds in Ronaldsay. Uh, there's an island called Rousey, which is just north of the mainland um, uh, in Orkney, which has loads and loads of ruins. Um, in fact, the, that's the place that's been known as the uh, the Egypt of the North because you can just I mean there's ruins everywhere up there. I mean whether it's Neolithic, right through Viking era, there's you know, again it's very rich in ruins. So yes, the whole Orkney Islands are um, are an archaeologist's paradise. This particular area that we're talking about, this grand Neolithic monumental landscape, um, is in uh, mainland uh, near the these two very beautiful uh, lakes. Lake Stennis and Lake Harry. Diane asks via email if any DNA material has been harvested from bones found on the site, and if so, uh, does that material give any information about who these people might have been? Well, well there's no uh, very. I don't believe there's any any human bones found in. Um, uh, I think there might have been one isolated bone, but uh, the, the bones that they found on the uh, Nesebrodgar are all cattle uh, with some deer. Um, and you know, livestock bones, predominantly cattle. Um, I don't believe they succeeded in getting DNA out of them. Yeah, I know they've been trying, uh, and I think they're working on it. But because of the uh, the weathering and the immense number of years, uh, it, it, it's not good for DNA preservation. Uh, I think they're trying more and more advanced techniques to see what they can get. But I don't believe they've got any DNA from the bones yet. I'm not certain of that. I mean, I say that because they're working at it all the time. And where does money come from for that research? Is it mostly universities or are there private foundations? Um, really, yeah, <laughs> they, they scramble a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Nick Card, the, uh, the chief archaeologist, um, uh, they, they, they look for, for grants, donations. They have a, um, a uh, website set up for potential donors or or donors to uh, to contribute to uh, keeping the um, archaeology digs going. They uh, it, it's not easy. Uh, they're you know small and remote uh, place and uh, you know, small population, so they you know they, they struggle. Anna asks via email: Could the sudden evacuation have had anything to do with climate change or plague? Probably not plague. Uh, and plague didn't really arrive until the 14th century, a long, long time later. Climate change is certainly 
it's a possibility. Um, again, there's people that are looking at that, trying to figure out what's going on there. Um, it, it, it took place around, again, the circumstantial evidence that, that you know, for example, um, the uh, volcanoes uh, Hecla in Iceland may have um, uh, impacted and given them a series of really bad um, winters, which may have ruined crops and, and precipitated a famine. There's evidence of, of certain kinds uh, of, a clim- of climate change taking place around this area, around this time. And, of course, there's the, the arrival of uh, this new uh, technology, uh, the Bronze Age. And that new technology brought um, a whole new philosophy, whole new outlooks. Um, it, it was a, very much a disruptive technology. And so that may also have played a role. It's probably a combination of, 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 of lots of things. How close can tourists get these days to the excavation site at the Nessa Brogdar? Oh, um, they're very welcoming, very accommodating. Uh, you can go in, you park your car on a little lawn, and um, several times a day the um, uh, site's chief pottery expert, who's a um, uh, very good speaker, he, he, they volunteer, they take people around. You know, they ask for donations if, if they can because, they, as I say, they're really looking to get... Uh, and to try to keep the work going there. But you can go, uh, there's little courts, so you're not actually walking in the ruins, but, yeah, you can walk right up there. They have a little bleachers set up there, um, and you can, you can just go and stand there all day if you want. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're very friendly, and if you have questions, they answer them. It's a, it's a very inclusive, very uh, accommodating site. Uh, so, yes, the tourists are quite welcome. Do you have a favorite time of day, perhaps time of year to visit? I would imagine, although you say it's a it's a relatively mild climate, maybe for us in Texas it would seem very cold in the winter. <laughs> yes, I heard your weather forecast. <laughs> this. Yes, we don't have anything like that in the, over here. Um, I, I love Orkney. I mean, I in my work for Geographic, I've been uh, fortunate to travel an awful lot to an awful lot of places around the world. But Orkney would rate right up there with some of my was one of my very very uh, favorite places. Um, it, it's nice. Well, when I say nice, it, it's haunting. It's mystical. Um, it's it's a very beautiful place, and it's beautiful all you know uh, all the time. Obviously, in winter, yes, you can get some pretty stiff winds. It can be cold, rainy, blustery. Uh, even in summer, you can get four seasons in fifteen minutes. <laughs> um, but you know it has a, just a real magical quality to it that um, you feel that you know as soon as you as soon as you're there. Um, the, the one regret I have about my story coming out this uh, month, I, I've been I've been going up there for the last three or four seasons. Mm. Now I don't have a reason to go up there again. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to try to find another good Orkney story to get myself sent back up there. It it really is a lovely place, really um, very special. Rolf Smith wrote the cover story for the August issue of National Geographic magazine. It is called Before Stonehenge. Rolf, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for making this time for us. Thank you very much. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer with help on the phones today from Christina Alsh. Our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think, and you can contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.